Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. The spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this series in 1 Corinthians and what you've taught us as a church. We want to be faithful in the fire, the fires that are all around us and within us. We want to be a church that glorifies you and and strengthens each other. And we pray that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us this morning, that that might be so. Teach us in your word today, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. About 20 years ago, I was in a Bible study with uh, some people from my work. It was sort of a, it was a small group of, of, of believers, I think most of us were believers, across the spectrum of Christian churches. And I remember one time we were discussing a passage of Scripture and whether or not we could trust what it said. And some seemed to have an attitude of suspicion about the Bible. There was one man in particular who always seemed to question whether it meant what it said. And in the course of our conversation, one of the women in the study said, well, God told me such and such. And the man said, tell us more about that. Almost as if what God had told her was a refreshing alternative, perhaps, to what God had told us in the Scripture. And I remember thinking a number of things at that moment and upon later reflection. If the Lord really told her something, what must that be like? That's never happened to me. And how is she certain it was the Lord? And why is this guy more interested in what she says the Lord told her than what the Bible says? And how awkward would it be if I were to question her? Like, would she think I lack faith that God was, in fact, speaking to her? Well, throughout the scripture, we see God doing these kinds of things, working miraculously, speaking directly to people and through people. Does that happen today? In the church of Corinth, the Holy Spirit worked miraculously during their worship, through the gift of what we call prophecy, what is called your prophecy, and another gift called tongues, which was, seemed to be particularly fascinating to the Corinthians. So let's look at this together. I invite you to follow along in, in the sermon outline as we go through our passage. So first of all, what is Paul talking about? What are these two gifts of the Holy Spirit? This is number one in your outline. Let's start with the gift of prophecy. In the Old Testament, we read about many prophets, many prophecies. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. They deliver a revelation that God has given them directly. This revelation or message can have various purposes. Sometimes a prophecy is a prediction of the future. A lot of times that's what we normally think of when we think of a prophecy, a foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future. However, that's only a part of what prophets do. 
It's actually only one-third, roughly, of the Old Testament prophecy is predictive about the future. Usually it's the case it's that prophecy is more forth-telling than foretelling. In other words, most, two-thirds, roughly, is a word about the present or or an interpretation of something that, that's happened, a, a word of warning or guidance. They speak to people on God's behalf. And we find many prophets in the Old Testament, don't we? Not just the ones that have books written, like Isaiah or Zephaniah, but Miriam, Moses' sister, was a, she prophesies. There were hundreds of prophets hidden by Obadiah. You had schools of prophets during the times of the kings. But one thing they had in common is they spoke a message from God. That was their prophecy. And what they said was true and always honoring to the God of Israel. That's how they distinguished between true prophets and false prophets. It is said of the prophet Samuel that none of his words fell to the ground. I love that. All of his prophecies were true. Now, very important for looking ahead to the new covenant, the New Testament church age, is the prophet Joel, who tells us of the expectation that a time was coming when the Lord would pour out his spirit on all people and men and women would prophesy. And this is fulfilled in the book of Acts in the early church when when the Holy Spirit comes starting the new age of the church. And prophecy was a significant part of that church life. Remember, this is key, all they had at that time in terms of scripture was the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. And as the apostles' teaching circulated and prophets spoke about Jesus and what he had done, people worshipped without the New Testament that we have today. Really important for, for our context. They weren't using the New Testament in their church worship. So a very important verse on this is Ephesians 2.20, where Paul says that God's family, his people, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the person and work of Christ is the cornerstone of the faith, the Christian faith, and the foundation of the church built on that cornerstone, that foundation was the apostles' And the prophets speaking about Christ and what he'd done. And it's clear here in Ephesians, Paul's not talking about Old Testament prophets. He's talking about people at that time with the gift of prophecy. Because, we know this, because later in Ephesians 3, Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is something new. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in the beginning of this new era of the Spirit, again, they didn't have the New Testament yet, but the apostles and prophets were speaking revelations about Christ, and that was foundational to the church. Now, how did this gift of prophecy relate to teaching? You know, elders, uh, pastor elders are required to have the gift of teaching, not the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is not the same thing as teaching. Teaching is expounding on a text of scripture. It's always listed as a separate gift from prophecy. It's expounding on a text of scripture, which at this time, 
teachers were teaching about the, of the Old Testament, expounding on the Old Testament. Prophecy, on the other hand, is giving a revelation directly from God. And if from God is always true. Now, some very good scholars, very respectable, faithful scholars, hold a different view of New Testament prophecy, that it's different. This view is that it's, it's unlike Old Testament prophets. New Testament prophets can make mistakes. They, they, they don't always speak the exact words of God, but they, they can have errors in their prophecies. Now, there are faithful men, faithful men and women, evangelical scholars that hold this view. Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms, among some of the prominent ones, even D.A. Carson uh, is at least sympathetic to this view, and I have much respect for them, and they may be right. But unless there's clear evidence in Scripture, I think we have to understand Joel's expectation of people prophesying to mean what prophesying meant to Joel in the Old Testament, which, that is, true prophets don't speak with error. Otherwise, it's difficult to see, isn't it, how prophets could have been the foundation of the church, as Paul says in Ephesians, if prophecies contain errors. It's also hard to see how we can test the spirits, like John tells us in his first letter, or when Jesus tells us to beware of false prophets, if prophets can be wrong. So I think it's best to understand New Testament prophecy continuous and like and the same as Old Testament prophecy. That is to say, it is a word from the Lord that cannot be false. Something unique to this foundational time in church history. Now, this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us today. Okay? Or impress upon us in, in some way to do something or say something. That impression could be mixed with error. And we're going to talk more about that at the end. I just think that's something different than this gift of prophecy that we see here in 1 Corinthians. Letter B. What about the gift of tongues? The word translated tongues is just the word languages. Okay, the first time we see this is in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. People started speaking in languages that were foreign to the speaker. They hadn't learned these languages. And Luke, the author, lists various regions the hearers were from. And they started hearing their own native language being spoken. So this was a key evidence. The Holy Spirit had come and this new age of the church had begun. The next example we see is in Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter preaches to the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, importantly. The Spirit falls on them. And they also speak in tongues. Luke, the author, gives no indication this is any different than the tongues at Pentecost. So I think we have to assume they're human languages. And this is important because it proved to the Jewish believers, this speaking in tongues was important, because it, it, it showed the, truest, the Jewish believers that Gentiles can have the Holy Spirit just like them. They can be a part of this new covenant community without circumcision. They don't have to become Jews first. This was a big deal. You see this in Acts 15, the, the, the council. They didn't have to be circumcised first. This was different than it was in the old covenant. People now can come directly to Christ and be a part of the church 
as a Gentile. Okay, significant. The next example of tongues is in Acts chapter 19. Paul is in Ephesus. There the people had only ter- heard of John's baptism, John the Baptist. In other words, they weren't Christian believers. So Paul tells them the gospel about Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak in tongues. Again, no indication it's any different. Luke, Luke doesn't give any indication. They're speaking other human languages. Now, even though the text doesn't say they spoke in tongues explicitly, back in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans also received the Holy Spirit. And it says those watching saw the Spirit was given, which probably means they spoke in tongues as well. So this speaking in other languages was a sign. The Holy Spirit showed the apostle that people could be saved and become a part of God's new community, the church, strictly through Jesus Christ. First the Jews, then the Samaritans, sort of half-Jews, then Gentiles, and then followers of the great prophet John the Baptist. They all spoke in tongues. Now, when we come to 1 Corinthians, we see the gift of tongues again. And again, I think unless there's something explicit in the text, we have to assume it's the same kind of tongues that we saw in Acts, human languages. Nevertheless, there's disagreement on this. Some very good scholars believe that tongues are different here than what we see in Acts. Instead of human languages, they could be angelic languages. And they would cite the previous chapter, which Alex covered last week, chapter 13. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now that's a possible reading. Okay? Again, good scholars hold that view. But if you look at the passage Alex preached last week, Paul, Paul follows that statement with this. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. No one understands all mysteries or has all knowledge. That's hyperbole. Like removing mountains. It's exaggerated language to make his point about love. So I think it's more likely he's doing the same thing with tongues. If you spoke in the languages of men and even of angels, but have not love, you're nothing. His point is not to describe what tongues are, but to explain the importance of love, I think. So good Christians can disagree on this. It's okay. I I think it seems best to understand tongues the same way we see in Acts. A miraculous speaking of a human language unknown to the speaker. And I'll just mention one more thing about tongues before we start going through the text. Even the good, responsible scholars that I mentioned that disagree and think tongues could be angelic language, they agree that tongues are not uncontrolled, ecstatic utterances. This will be clear in next week's passage, but there's no room biblically for what you sometimes see on TV where people are losing control of their speech, losing control of their actions, falling over in some uncontrolled fashion, and then basically blaming the Holy Spirit on that they can't control it. That kind of behavior is in direct contradiction to what Paul outlines in the rest of this chapter in terms of orderly worship. And, and he says elsewhere, doesn't he, that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let's look together now at Paul's instruction using these gifts 
in the church. This is number two in your outline. Use gifts to build up other worshipers. Okay, let me, let's read together in your Bibles, starting at verse one through five. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay, as we see here, Paul's main concern is that the spiritual gift not be used to build up yourself, but to love one another, to, to, to build up others in the church. One scholar said this, the theme of strengthening one another is woven through the fabric of this chapter. Spiritual gifts are for the church. He says they're to be earnestly desired, especially prophecy. Because, he says, unless the language is interpreted, tongues only build up the speaker. Prophecy is understood by everyone there, and everyone can be edified. Now, we see something else here about tongues. It could be prayer or praise. When, when he says in verse 2 that a tongue is only spoken to God, it doesn't necessarily mean it's only prayer. Okay? It just means only God can understand you. In Acts chapter 2, for instance, when people were speaking in, lang- in these languages, other people understood the language. But if no one understood that language, you might say you're just speaking to God because he's the only one listening who understands what you're saying. So if you don't understand it, it's, it's a mystery, he says. Using a spiritual gift can be thrilling personally, but unless others are edified, it doesn't make sense to do it in the church. People speaking in tongues can be edified personally, but if no one interprets, it doesn't strengthen or edify the body. So the criteria Paul gives here for using your gifts in the church is the edification of other believers or other people, building others up. And really, this is just an extension, isn't it, of what Alex, what we talked about last week in chapter 13. As one commentator says, the Corinthians may be dazzled by the gifts, but they should pursue love. That's the operating principle here. Now in verse five, let's look at this. Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Now he's already said in chapter 12, not everyone would or could speak in tongues. So he probably means here something similar to chapter seven when he said, I wish everyone were single like me. He's not dis- he wasn't disparaging marriage. So what he means here is it's not second place to have the gift of tongues. It's a blessing. It's a benefit. One translation renders it this way. I'm happy for you if you speak in tongues. It's a good thing, okay? But in the assembly of believers, there's a greater gift to use. He says one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues. Now, he's not saying the person's greater, the person with the gift is superior. Remember uh, chapter 12 that Ben covered? All gifts are necessary to the body. So a prophet is not more spiritual or a greater person or anything. But certain gifts are more edifying to the church. They're, they're greater functionally, you might say. Because you don't need to interpret prophecy, 
everyone is edified. And in the church, he wants them to use gifts that will benefit other worshipers. That brings us to number three in your outline. Worshipers do not benefit unless they understand. In verses 6 through 19, Paul expands on this idea that comprehension is necessary for there to be any benefit to the other worshipers. Let's go through these verses together. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? When you teach a scripture, it results in knowledge. Those two words here go together. Similarly, prophecy, revelation, they go together. In both cases, people can understand what you're saying. That's more beneficial than tongues. This is pretty obvious. It's more beneficial than tongues when they don't understand what you're saying. Then starting in the next verse 7, he must really want to hammer this because he, he starts using some illustrations and leans into this principle that comprehension, thinking, is essential in worship for others to benefit. Okay, verse 7. Let's read this through 13. Even if lifeless if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or, or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. Note, note here, he does speak of languages in the world. And none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with, your, with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Stop there. So a musical instrument being played, or someone singing a song. You have to discern the song. You have to, you have to know what's being played or you're lost. It's the same in, with speaking in tongues when there's no interpreter. He says, this, this is a really important principle. He says people could feel like a foreigner in their own church, and that should not be. Okay, they're a family of believers. People need to feel at home in their own church family. And when someone's speaking a foreign language that no one understands, it makes me feel I'm not part of the family. It causes division. So you need to pray that you can interpret that language or that someone can. Let's look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. When, ta when Paul talks here about his spirit, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is our, our new spirit. We, we celebrated this morning being born again. When, when we're born again, when we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our spirit comes to life. One scholar defined this human spirit as this, quote, the inner invisible faculty that can be especially attuned to the things of God. So, it's like your heart. When, when Paul says, my spirit, that which is tuned to the things of God, it can be engaged in tongues without the mind understanding. But in the church, the mind should also be engaged in worship and prayer. There needs to be intellectual understanding associated 
with with this spiritual activity. This is an apt word, isn't it, for some of the extreme charismatic uh, churches that we see on TV or see in our day, where there's no intellectual activity. In fact, it's almost discouraged. Just go with the Spirit. Paul says no. In the church, there needs to be both the Spirit and the mind at work, or it's not edifying and it's not proper worship. Remember, transformation comes from the renewing of your mind. So we need both, don't we? And there's a danger, let's be honest, there's a danger in both extremes, isn't there? I mean, you don't want to just engage the mind. That's head knowledge. Maybe that's more at orchard. That's our tendency if we, have, if we err one way. We don't want to do that. But we also don't want to just engage the spirit without the mind and ignore mental faculties. I would argue that's more dangerous, opening yourselves up to who knows what, But Paul says we need to strike a balance in our worship where the spirit or the heart and the mind are both engaged. Thistleton puts it this way. If only the mind is active, everything remains at a theoretical level. If only the heart is active, the door lies open for self-deception. If both are open to the Holy Spirit, the result can build up the community and bear fruit of love for the other. Paul makes his point yet another way in verse 16. Let's look at that. Otherwise, he says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone be in a position of, of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. So saying amen means I agree and I want to join in that prayer or, or praise. People can neither join in nor can they agree if they don't understand what's being said. They can't be built up without comprehending. Now at this point, because of all this negative argumentation about improper use of tongues, people could think he's down on the gift of tongues. So he says in verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, he states that tongues can be edifying for the individual privately. Now, just, just let me pause here for a second. He brings this up as an aside. He doesn't elaborate or give us any more information. We would love to hear about what, is, what this meant for Paul. It must not have been important. He speaks about tongues in private, but it's not his concern. We know it's certainly not necessary for spiritual growth or sanctification because not all believers have the gift, as we saw in chapter 12. So he has no problem with tongues privately. But in church, he says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, because that's edifying, than 10,000 words in a tongue, which is just an arbitrarily high number in that culture. We might say a a trillion words. But note again, I think this is interesting, speaking in tongues is made up of words. Again, this demonstrates these are actual languages, not just syllables strung together or ecstatic speech. So Paul speaks personally that even though he could speak in tongues, he'd way rather prophesy than speak in tongues in the church. This is all to reinforce, again, his overall point, pursue love, that in the church prophecy is better because the church will be edified. You're loving and demonstrating that for other people. 
Worshippers do not benefit unless they understand what's being said. Okay, what about unbelievers that come into the church? This is number four in your outline. Effective evangelism also requires understanding. Verses 20 through 25. Let's read this somewhat difficult text. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even when they do not listen, and even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are, not, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now these verses are are somewhat difficult to understand. But verse 20 is pretty straightforward. They should be like children in terms of their dependence on the Lord and, and innocent when it comes to evil. But they should not be like children in terms of their understanding. They need to grow up. This this harks back, doesn't it, to chapter 3. They're still on milk. They're not ready for solid food. Not only are they dividing over their favorite leader, they're actually acting selfishly with their gifts. Like little kids. You know, little kids often say, did I do good? They're just looking for that accolade or self-congratulating. The Corinthians were like that with their gifts. They're just flaunting their gifts, trying to please themselves, not benefiting anyone else, serving themselves like children. Now, verse 21 through 25 can be a little tricky. (laughs) And the issue is verse 22. Notice that Paul says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not believers. But then, in verses 23 through 25, He explains it's actually prophecy that's going to benefit unbelievers, not tongues. Now, please follow me closely here. The reason for this confusion is that when we hear the word sign, we think it's a good thing. We we think of the word sign like John used it in his gospel, a sign to point people to Jesus. That's not how Paul is using the word sign here. It's actually a negative sign. It's a sign of judgment. Earlier in verse 21, this, where it says the law says, Paul's referencing Isaiah 28. And in that passage, God's pronouncing judgment against Israel. Like Israel is like the unbeliever. Okay? Judgment against Israel. God tells the Israelites, because they refuse to repent, the Assyrians, someone who speaks a foreign language that they won't understand, is going to come in and judge them. Okay, and this is fulfilled, of course, in 722 B.C. So, When the Assyrians come in and take the northern kingdom into exile, they're speaking languages the Israelites don't understand. It's a sign of judgment. So Paul's making the analogy that unbelievers hearing a different language is a sign of judgment. It's not a positive sign. It's a negative one. Tongues will never lead unbelievers to repentance, but only to a further rejection of the gospel, which ends in judgment. Now the second part of verse 22 says prophecy, on the other hand, is for believers, not unbelievers. Now, 
This, this time he means it positively. Now, unfortunately, I don't like to critique the Bible translation that we, that we have. But the ESV says a sign for believers. That word sign is actually not in the Greek. And you'll note in the, in the ESV footnote that they're just assuming it's there because it, it provides a nice parallel to the first part of the verse. And while that may be true, I just think it confuses the issue. Because sign would have to be used positively in that sense. Now, sorry that was a little technical. If I lost you in the last 60 seconds, I apologize. I'm about to get you back right here. Okay, listen. Let me summarize what Paul is saying in this last section. Prophecy mainly benefits believers. That's who it's for, not unbelievers. Having said that, tongues are worse for unbelievers because they're not going to understand anything you're saying. They're just going to think you're crazy. And it's just going to further alienate them from God and bring them closer to the judgment. Better if the unbeliever hears prophecy because they can understand the words at least. And maybe by God's grace, they'll be convicted of their sin, which is a good thing. Maybe they'll understand from the words that are spoken that they're sinners and they need God's salvation in Christ, ultimately confessing him as Lord and Savior, worshiping him, saying, hey, God is really among you. Now that phrase is another allusion to Isaiah 45, which speaks of a later time in Israel's future where even Gentile nations would acknowledge, hey, God is really among you because they're getting saved. Now, perhaps you're listening. Let me get personal here. Perhaps you're listening to this and you need to be called to account. That future is here. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's open to anyone. Starting with his death and resurrection, he's making everything new. He's undoing all the failures of humanity, which are so obvious outside of us and within us. Starting with his victory on the cross. And he will reign forever. And you can personally share in this victory by reorienting your entire life to Jesus and following him. If you don't know this Savior who took our judgment on the cross, you will face that judgment on your own and will be excluded from his victory forever. So please trust in him today. You will come to see that God is really among us. This is from him. And he can save you. Okay, in our final minutes, I want to just consider some application for us. I have two contemporary questions I'll try to answer. And then one, con one sort of concluding application to tie it together for us. Letter A, what about the gift of prophecy today? I'm going to answer this question two ways, because as I mentioned at the outset, good, trusted, faithful, Bible-believing scholars disagree on what the gift of prophecy is. If there's continuity between the Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy, and I think there is, then we do not have prophecy today. The foundation of the church rested on the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Like the gift of apostle, if prophets continued today in that manner, we would still be adding to that foundation. Therefore, adding to or conflicting with the very word of God. I think Tom Schreiner is correct that as the New Testament canon 
was formed and completed and started to be distributed. As, as churches started having the completed word of God in their possession, Old and New Testaments, there was no more need for the prophets or apostles or any kind of direct revelation from God because they had his completed revelation in the scriptures. And this transition wasn't like, you know, February 6th, you know, 125 AD. It happened certainly over time and varied by location. We're just not sure. Certainly, and this is where all responsible scholars on both sides would agree with this. If someone today makes the statement, thus says the Lord, whatever comes next out of their mouth better be the scripture. <laughs> because that's the only definitive word of God that we have. Now again, some scholars, who I highly respect, argue alternatively that the gift of prophecy is different in the New Testament. It's different than Old Testament prophets who spoke infallible words of God. Prophets today could be mistaken, and they argue it continues today. Now that's less serious because... These responsible scholars agree that these prophets are not speaking the very words of God. They're subordinate to the scripture, just like teaching, and they can never override what scripture says. I think a better category for what they're talking about is what we might call impressions from the Holy Spirit. Tom Schreiner and others have argued this. Because the Lord can and does lead us today. Okay, impressions or promptings or a check in your spirit. Certainly you've, you've had this happen. Something that causes you to think differently or act on something. Hey, I sensed, I just sensed that I should be praying for you. Or you said something, you taught something that powerfully impacted me. The Lord really used that in my life. Things like that. Absolutely the Lord does that today. I just don't think that's prophecy. And we have to be careful, even with this, because our impressions can be wrong. <laughs> we can be mistaken. And, and that's why it's unwise, I think, to use phrases like, the Lord told me. Better to say something like, I think the Lord is telling me. Otherwise, it feels untouchable to, to others. Like, the Lord told me. So if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. I mean, that's not helpful. So adding some humility is essential because we may be wrong. And we certainly don't want to blame the Holy Spirit on an error in our judgment. I'm sure we've all heard stories. You know, the Lord told me that you and I are going to be married. <laughs> or whatever the impression may be. And, and many times it's sincere. It's such a strong impression. They really believe it's from the Lord. That's why we always want to be tethered to the Bible. And, and we want to consult others so we can ensure we're using good discernment. The Holy Spirit will never impress upon you, brother or sister, something that contradicts the truths of Scripture or something that contradicts biblical wisdom. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards said this regarding these kinds of impressions. It's very good. Listen to this. I would entreat the people of God to be very cautious how they give heed to such things. He says, I have seen them fail even in my own experience with great power and sweet communion with God being so sure, yet they failed. The Bible is the light God has given us. When we follow such impressions and impulses, and leave, we leave the guidance of the North Star and follow a jack-o'-lantern instead, end quote. So while we should never dismiss impressions, because the Lord does use them, 
We should be careful not to rely on them alone for guidance in our lives. Always test against the scripture and rely on others to validate the wisdom. And again, I think these impressions from the Holy Spirit are different than the gift of prophecy that we see in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament era. Letter B, what about the gift of tongues today? This is a far less serious question because no one argues tongues are authoritative. I mean, there's never a danger of tongues competing with the completed canon of Scripture, at least not in responsible evangelicalism. So whether tongues continue today is debated, and, and there's, there are responsible scholars on both sides of the question. Some argue tongues have ceased, others tongues continue today, and others are kind of somewhere in between. In my estimation, there's no compelling scripture to argue that tongues have ceased. So you might say I'm open but cautious. I think uh, in certain missionary situations where cultures have never been exposed to the gospel, for instance, Maybe more likely, I don't know, maybe more likely the Lord would use miraculous gifts such as someone speaking in their language that never learned it to reinforce the truth of the message. We never want to put God in a box like that. He can do what he wants and he gets all the glory, okay? But we don't think it's normative today. In terms of public tongues in our corporate worship at Orchard, for instance, I think it's really a matter of edification that we've seen throughout this chapter Paul's governing principle in this chapter is what's going to strengthen and build up the other worshipers. If someone spoke in a different language during our open time, for instance, it would make us uncomfortable and not build us up. We would feel like a foreigner in our own family, which is exactly what Paul says you don't want to do. So this doesn't happen too often, but there have been times where someone interested in our church will will talk to me, and, and they're seeking that kind of worship experience with tongues. And we would just counsel them that probably a different church is going to be a much better fit for them. What about private tongues? Some believe they have a prayer language, praying to God in words they don't know. They feel spiritually edified in, in doing so. People I highly respect in the faith believe this. In the distant past, I even thought that I prayed in tongues. Looking back now, this is just me personally, I don't think my experience was tongues. It was emotionally healthy, I'll tell you. It certainly was not demonic or anything evil. It was edifying personally, but I don't think that was tongues. Again, this is debated among very good scholars whether these kinds of experience are prayer languages or maybe just psychological relaxation. Even if it's not tongues, it doesn't mean it's demonic. Okay, it still may be edifying for the individual. J.I. Packer, the great, highly respected theologian, just went to be with the Lord this weekend, uh, Knowing God, a classic work and other books. Packer compared this to singing in the shower, and he wasn't trying to disrespect anyone when he said that. He was just making the point that even if it's not actually tongues, it can still be edifying to the individual. Now let's consider the final concluding point in your outline. Use your gifts, letter C, to love and build up others. Paul Gardner said this, it is, one of the, it is one of the great sadnesses for the church throughout history, including our own day and age, that so many believers look for God's signs in their own lives, such as speaking in tongues, to evidence 
their spiritual gifting, rather than looking for signs that clearly evidence the presence of God in the church and lead to edification of the church, end quote. We have a tendency, don't we, to be drawn to the miraculous. I mean, it feels powerful, sort of back to the apostles, to have signs and wonders. And we can falsely think, brothers and sisters, that's what we need to have to demonstrate God is working. But that's not biblical. The evidence of his presence is when people are edified and built up. In Matthew 7, Jesus even tells us, people are going to do mighty signs and wonders in my name, and they don't even know me. They're not even believers. Jesus says elsewhere, of course, this is how people will know this is true. This is how people will know you are my disciples, not by how miraculous your spiritual gifts are, but by your love for one another. We never want to use our gifts just for self-edification or impressing people. We certainly don't want to be a consumer in our church, but a servant and a worshiper. Rosner says this, our fundamental orientation in worship should not be that of seeking to receive something that's good for us, but seeking to bring greater benefit and advantage to others. This is the fundamental takeaway from this chapter. Seek to use your spiritual gifts to edify the church, not just what's edifying to you or, or what you think is impressive. We're not to be self-serving with our gifts, but to build up others. Pursue love, Paul says. The greatest spiritual gifts are those that edify other people. Remember uh, Jeff Uleman's sermon back in, in uh, chapter 8 on the gray areas of the Christian life as it relates to, to Christian freedom. We don't just flaunt our freedom to do what we want. No, love and concern for others needs to be factored in to our discernment in what we do. It's really the same principle here with our spiritual gifts, isn't it? We don't just seek the gifts that make us feel good. We're to seek gifts intentionally with an eye for loving and serving others. Let me just take teaching as an example. Most of us teachers love to read and study. And it's so personally edifying to do that. I love it when I just have time to study for my own learning. But that's just for me. That can be self-absorbed. You teachers know that studying and preparing to teach others is much more difficult, isn't it? It can be very taxing. But that's how the gift should be used, Paul says. That's how we love and serve. So whether it's teaching helping, administrating, encouraging, singing, whatever, your gift. Seek growth in that gift. Find God's presence and how others are built up from it, not just how you feel when you do it. I'll give the last word to Tom Schreiner. Spiritual maturity is not self-absorbed. The real mark of spiritual growth is pursuing what will edify others. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're thankful for the wisdom of your word. We want to be a church that edifies each other. Give us the wisdom in our own personal situations with our own gifts, maybe consulting others for, for guidance in this. Lord, we want to be faithful to you, faithful in the fire, and we want to do that for Jesus' glory for all time and in eternity. Amen.